It's August 25th, 2023. This is the Room Now Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com. A lot of reports to go over this week. No cute introduction. We've got like four coming from Southeast Asia. One, two, three, four, five right at the start. They're doing a lot of work in China, Taiwan, Korea, and also Japan. The first comes from the Taiwan Health Registries, where they actually did an analysis. I don't know why. I think based on a prior report that shows an association between gout and aortic aneurysms. What? So they looked at the Taiwanese health records, which are actually quite good, and matched about 120,000 gout patients up um, with 120,000 controls and found overall that having gout increases the risk of abdominal aortic aneurysms by almost two and a half fold, hazard ratio 2.46. Moreover, if you were on gout therapy, most of which I assume is urate lowering therapy, you cut that risk in half. So does it make sense? Well, certainly we know a lot of vascular disease uh, is a consequence of hyperuricemia and gout. I mean, basically, basically it's like having gasoline in your blood and what's that going to do to your blood vessels? Well, we know it increases the risks of cardiovascular events, uh, MACE events, etc. Um, could it give you more aortic aneurysm? I think it's something to consider. And it's something you should maybe looking, be looking for. Again, it's one of the many comorbidities that you can have, I think, with gout. A report out of China. This is a, a press release from GSK, the makers of Shingrix, the recombinant uh, zoster vaccine. They did a phase four 6,000 person study looking at the efficacy of Shingrix in that population. Um, and overall, they they had, I guess, uh, half the patients were on placebo and half were on the Shingrix. Those on Shingrix, and again, to be in the study, had to be over age 50. Those on Shingrix, no zoster events. In the placebo population, 31 zoster events, so 100% protection. These data confirm the findings of the U.S. 30,000 patient or 25,000 patient ZOE study, ZOE 50, ZOE 70, showing greater than 90% efficacy of the zoster subunit vaccine uh, in preventing shingles events. This is impressive data. Is it not? Again, I've been yelling and screaming over the years, and I and I and I forgot to report about or uh, uh, something that was done. Um, I'm yelling and screaming because there is no reports or studies done, prospective studies done using the Shingrix vaccine in autoimmune patients or immunosuppressed patients. I mean, it has that adjuvant in there, and might that make those diseases worse? Et Again, that study hasn't been done, but there was a sub-analysis done. Um, and uh, it was reported in the journal Rheumatology, uh, and it was a sub-analysis where they found in the ZOE 50, ZOE 70 studies, about 1 in 15 or 1 in 12 patients had some pre-existing uh, immune-mediated disease, and it turns out in those people, giving the, the Zoster vaccine, Shingrix, was not associated with any difference in outcomes. And again, that's in a, a younger 50 or older population and an older 70 or older population. So again, it was a sub-analysis, not intended to be the primary point of the study. 
Um, I still would be happier if we had more data, but honestly, this has been out there long enough, uh, and there's been a few retrospectives that show there really hasn't been much of a, of a problem using this Schindler's vaccine, and that's why the Zoster, um, the older Zoster vaccine, Zostavax, is no longer available. Uh, another Chinese study looked at uh, the association um, with um, therapy and gout flares. So the idea, of course, as you know, is you, as you start urate lowering therapy and and drop that high uric acid level, you run the risk of a gout flare. And this study of almost 600 patients, all initiating urate lowering therapy, they compared those who received nofibuxostat to lofibuxostat to high fibuxostat. I guess that's the 40 versus 80 milligram dose. And they basically showed overall there was a 12% risk of gout flares with urate-lowering therapy. Um, they showed that being on low-dose fibuxostat um, had no difference, uh, no increased rate of flares, but it being on high-dose fibuxostat had a significant, a 25, I'm sorry, a, a three-fold or 300% increase in flare risk. And I think that that makes sense. The more aggressive you are at lowering uric acid, the more likely you are to induce a flare. And, you know, when we started looking at all these gout trials, I looked at my many years of experience, and I must say that in my using urate-lowering therapy, I don't have a lot of gout flares um, in my history. But you know what? This, this data sort of confirms what I've been doing. I was not as aggressive as I probably should have been, meaning that every, as soon as I started using peglodicase, where I'm dramatically lowering rates, I saw tons of gout flares. The more aggressive you are in your urate-lowering therapy regimen, the um, more you're going to see. So starting at 100 as a test dose of allopurinol, you're not going to see anything. But if you rapidly go up to 300 and then higher, going for target, you may actually have to deal with that more frequently. A study on Kikuchi-Fujimoto disease, or Kikuchi syndrome, as you know, that's a necrotizing lymphadenitis, often a fever of unknown origin um, diagnosis. Um, this is a cytokine comparison looking at um, a cohort of patients with Kikuchi syndrome and comparing them to Stills disease. And their takeaway from this is a cute little thing, which is if you exclude MAS and HLH patients, the Kikuchi patients had higher levels of gamma interferon, greater than 8.5 um, picograms per ml, but more importantly, they made a big deal out of the gamma to furon to IL-6 ratio being greater than 0.45, meaning that patients with still disease have much more dominant IL-6 levels when they're active with systemic disease, whereas Kikuchi's patients, which could also present with fever and lymphadenopathy, may have more gamma to furon. Now, if only we had regular access to these cytokines, that might help in the differential diagnosis. A Japanese study of 98 patients with suspected VEXA syndrome, as you know, this is sort of really interesting syndrome, came up with, um, you know, and they looked at those patients and they did genetic testing and they found that 45% had these pathogenic um, UBA1 variants and basically they came up with a diagnostic score which had an incredible performance, AUC of, uh, of almost 91%, uh, and it was based on age greater than 50 typical skin lesions, lung involvement, chondritis, and macrocytic anemia are the features that should make you suspect VEXA syndrome. If you want to know the score, get the citation. It's on the website. 
And as rheumatic disease had a, a real interesting analysis that supports the ULAR guidelines on steroids. As you know, ACR guidelines on steroids, don't use them. Don't use them, don't use them. And if you must use them, get off them as soon as possible. ULAR guidelines much more permissive saying, go ahead, use them. Use low dose. You're going to stop it eventually. And so in this particular anal analysis, I think it was really well done. Um, look at three large trials. Um, Best was one of them and a few others that had patients who received steroid bridging or not. And overall, they showed that the RA patients who had a bridging regimen of steroids, meaning they started it and then they stopped it, they had more rapid improvement in their CDI scores. They were less likely to make future DMAR changes, 40% less likely. They had a similar rate of steroid persistence beyond the point when you should have stopped it. Um, and yes, overall, those who did steroid bridging therapy had overall greater exposure, almost two grams uh, greater exposure to prednisone equivalents over a two-year period. But they didn't show a hazard to that. And that's, this forms a basis for the ULAR opinion that we all use them we're, and we're all pretty good at stopping the steroids and that if it gets the patient better relief uh, and better control early on, then why not be liberal with that? I think this is a bone of contention between ULAR and ACR guidelines. How do you sit on this? When we did a poll on this when the ULAR guidelines came out, the Twitter poll, which I think was mostly U.S. rheumatologists voting, were highly in favor of this more relaxed view from ULAR. Anywho, speaking of the ACR, analysis of the RISE registry supported by the ACR and a Medicare um, database looked at uh, almost 1,500 ankylosing spondylitis patients and showed that um, AS patients are at higher risk for fracture. The incidence rate was 77 per 1,000 patient years. Risk factors were, um, if you have AS, was older age, almost a threefold higher risk, uh, prior history of fracture, a five-fold higher risk, and interestingly, being on 30 milligrams of morphine or higher, almost a two-fold higher risk. I think the big take-home here is AS patients on opioids may have a higher fracture risk. Now, they didn't go into why they fractured. Were they falling more because they were dopey from their opioids? Are they on opioids because they're more infirm and frail and in pain and therefore they're falling for that reason or is there another factor here but nonetheless it's an interesting marker that um, and if you do have a, a, a spondylitis patient on opioids that's a whole new risk category is it not so maybe uh, the fracture is not surprising an analysis of patacitinib using the FDA's Adverse Event port Reporting System, this is sort of a Freedom of Information Act data gathering, looked at um, the frequency of serious adverse events. And, and um, I like this because, first off, this is voluntary reporting. There's no science here. There's a lot of numbers here. This is a relatively new drug, and new drugs tend to get a lot of reports, nonsensical and sensical. And the question is, is anything jump off the page here when you look at this list of adverse events reported voluntarily by you in patients and primary care doctors, anybody can report, 
Uh, these are not, you know, vetted in any way. They do not go through, um, you know, any kind of serious review. It's they have the data. It's there. Anyway, SAEs, UTI led the led the list at two two point seven percent, and that's reasonable. Herpes zoster one point six percent, very reasonable. Diverticulitis one point two percent. I think you know there's uh, jack inhibitors are associated with higher risk of colonic perforations, usually related to diverticulitis. I don't know that it causes diverticulitis, but it's interesting. Bronchitis, 0.7%. Nasopharyngitis, 0.7%. Nephrolithiasis, 0.7%. And also at that same level, pulmonary embolism, 0.7%. And uh, pneumocystis pneumonia at 0.5%. So, you know, I think that there's uh, the, the infection thing, I'm not surprised at. Although, again, the doctors who reported this called those serious infections and really is a UTI. Serious? I guess it could be. Um, PJP pneumonia is serious, and we don't typically think of PJP pneumonia uh, as being associated with hepatocytin. It might be worth looking for or keeping in the back of your head. Um, two reports from Lancet looking at um, COVID and how our patients respond um, to uh, vaccination. So in this study of 23,000 patients, with, um, who are potentially immunosuppressed. It included about 40% with solid organ transplants, about 28% with autoimmune rheumatic disease, 29% with lymphoid malignancies. These were older patients, 60 to 70 years, all had received three, four, five doses of the COVID vaccine, different vaccines. But overall, having undetectable IgG spike antibodies 23% with transplant, 14% in our patients with autoimmune rheumatic disease, and 21% with lymphoid malignancies. Again, this means that despite your patients getting repeated vaccinations, as many as 14, 15% may not have protection. And that's a little scary. Another study out of Hong Kong, this is really wild if you ask me, it's a retrospective analysis of people who um, who had COVID infection um, and also with or without vaccination subsequently uh, and looked at the risk of developing future autoimmune diseases. Um, basically, they showed that COVID infection increases the risk of autoimmunity and being vaccinated decreases the risk of autoimmunity in certain instances. So what they did here is an EHR study, about one plus million COVID infected individuals in Hong Kong were compared to three plus million non-COVID patients. Um, and in the study, they found a significant increase as, it, as told by the adjusted hazard ratio for spondyloarthritis, 1.32. Rheumatoid arthritis, 1.29. Psoriatic arthritis, 1.42. Grave disease, 1.3. Antiphospholipid syndrome, 2.1. ITP 2.1, MS 2.6, vasculitis 1.5. And those are all significant by adjusted hazard ratios. If you receive the COVID vaccine, there were decreased rates of pemphigus, grave disease, antiphospholipid syndrome, ITP, and lupus. My goodness, what does all this mean? Well, it can mean a lot of things, right? I mean, it could mean, and the crazy interpretation would be, 
uh, or the out on the limb interpretation would be that infection with this virus, you know, activates the immune system, activates inflammasomes, you know, sets off a cascade of events that leads to the autoimmune disease in people who may be predisposed or not. Um, it could also mean that during the COVID era, sick people with COVID infections went to doctors, had more investigations, and hence other things were found, including, you know, um, itchy teeth and asthma and maybe Graves' disease because of all the testing done. Um, there is one other study. It looks like it's kind of the same group using the same database. I don't know that there's a lot of data really to support that. I know that I reported here about patients getting COVID and or getting the COVID vaccines who had a higher risk of getting Stills disease or flares of Stills disease. The same suppositions in play. We're activating inflammasome. Bad things might happen, etc. I think this is interesting. I don't know what to make of it. You'll tell me when you see me. Uh, I like this report on ANCA-associated vasculitis patients having a pre-existing, prior to the diagnosis of having their GPA or MPA diagnosed, they actually had a higher risk of cardiovascular events. This is a study of 200 and, uh, 2, 2,400 uh, vasculitis patients, um, and they compared them sort of uh, one to three with over 7,000 controls. In the 12 months prior to the index diagnosis of AAV, the, those who had AAV had a, a higher rate of cardiovascular disease. That was threefold higher than matched controls. Cardiovascular events, I should say, right? And then actual MACE events, that was twofold higher than the controls. So, again, uh, in play, maybe there's a preclinical state um, with vascular information. May it may be leading to these events as the prodrome and maybe the red flags and or flares, if you will, that um, more could be happening. Do I think that patients with new onset MACE or cardiovascular events should be screened for vasculitis? I don't think so. I don't, that's not really what this is saying. I do think this might be saying something about the pathogenesis of uh, ANCA-associated vasculitis. Lastly, um, I love these syndromes, systemic sclerosis, sine scleroderma. What? You've got scleroderma, but you don't have any tight skin. This is like psoriatic arthritis with no psoriasis. Well, then how do you, how do it know? It's a thermos kind of question, isn't it? Well, I saw a fair number of these cases when I was a resident. I got to work with the University of Pittsburgh and the great Thomas Metzger. And remember cases of this that were being seen in clinic and in the hospital with really major organ involvement, and they were systemic sclerosis, sine scleroderma, no skin involvement, um, a few cutaneous manifestations, but no sclerodactyly, and maybe no no rainouts. Anyway, this particular analysis is from the USTAR database of over 4,200 patients, and they found an 8.8% uh, incidence rate of or prevalence of systemic sclerosis, sine scleroderma, um, and again. These patients, it wasn't their skin disease that wowed everybody. It was their interstitial lung disease in greater than 40%. It was the 3% who had renal crisis as their presentation without having sclerodactyly. So what they did find in this group of systemic sclerosis sine scleroderma is they had a lower prevalence of digital ulcers, ultimately, half as many. They had less puffy fingers, uh, like 
60% ultimately versus 80%. They had an equal risk of ILD compared to localized scleroderma, but both were far less than the risk of ILD with diffuse disease and scleroderma. If you had systemic sclerosis sine scleroderma, uh, and you had telangiectasias, you had a higher risk, a five-fold higher risk of cardiac diastolic dysfunction. So again, if you're making this diagnosis, maybe you should be looking for cardiac involvement, not just renal involvement, not just GI involvement, not just lung involvement. And lastly, because they didn't have diffuse disease, it's not surprising that, that even though they could get organ involvement, they had better survival rates, 92%. I think this was over 10 years compared to those with um, uh, uh, limited skin, uh, skin disease and diffuse skin disease. Actually, 15 years of follow-up, 92% survival with uh, the sine sclerodermas. Um, limited scleroderma had a 69% survival, and diffuse scleroderma had 55% 15-year survival. Really interesting. These are out there. It's a nice review of the other manifestations of uh, this particular odd cohort of patients that you, the rheumatologist, will see. That's it for this week. Hope you enjoyed it. I hope you take good care of yourselves, and we'll talk next week about the wide, wonderful world of rheumatology.